Welcome, dear listener, and thank you for joining me for this special Halloween edition of Dead Hand Radio. I'm your host, Andrew Hall. What we're about to embark on throughout these coming days leading up to Halloween is a series of interviews with people from all walks of life who've experienced some of the most harrowing, spine-chilling tales you've ever heard. We're talking ghost stories, haunted buildings, cursed lands, myths, legends, and lore, the likes of which many have never heard before. Some of my guests are new, most are returning visitors of the show, and have agreed to share with us, in some cases for the first time ever, their personal experiences of unexplained and hair-raising stories from beyond the veil. Consider this your final warning. Those who choose to proceed may have their sanity challenged, question reality, or lose their mind with fear from these tales of the unknown and unexplained. And now, the Dead Hand Radio Halloween Special. This is Jamie Ray from the terrible, horrible, really kind of fun, Faye Five from Fans, and you're listening to Dead Hand Radio with your host, Andrew the Undead Hall, coming from the wasteland of Las Vegas. All right, man. So here we go. Hey, Jamie. Hey. Welcome back to Dead Hand Radio. <laughs> and thanks for joining me for this special Halloween edition of the podcast, man. It's spooky. Ooh. That's what we're hoping for, man. You know, it's the season. It is the season. The most wonderful time of the year. Agreed. Yes, I do. I do enjoy this time of year. But the reason that I did this, um, you know, the Cold War has just been a very influential part of my life. And when I decided to start the podcast, which was heavily inspired by from the wastes, Evan, Evan's uh, podcast. Yeah. He's, uh, he's great. Yeah, exactly. And then Phantom Dark Dave, who um, was the first person to invite me to come on a podcast and that really got the uh, the fire started for me. That right there is a good dude. Let me tell you. I agree. He's one of the reasons I do what I do because uh, you know his pop culture podcast was was so influential. Um, he had actually ended that prior to me um, starting the the podcasting, mm-hmm. but he was starting up his new podcast, which was uh, which is the the greatest podcast name of all time in my opinion the podcast from another world i i love that podcast name man it's a great one i think it's the coolest name ever anyway those two guys uh, heavily inspired me and then there was a, a third person who was 
uh, I was recording with and we were, we were going a different direction than, um, than what I eventually ended up doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it didn't pan out. It was something that was, you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to him. His name is Alex. He's a local here. Uh, he's, um, somebody that I'm hoping to bring on to the podcast at some point because of his support and encouragement. And he's somebody that I've known for years. Um, but you know, the, uh, the, the, the origins of, of that podcast just didn't pan out for me. It wasn't a direction that I really wanted to go. So, gotcha. so ended up starting the, the podcast dead hand radio and I'm um, almost six months into it. And I'm my neighbor across the street. I was talking to her and her husband about it. And she tells me her sister is a psychic medium. Oh, and you know, right there, the, the light bulb came on and I thought I'm going to invite her onto my podcast. So she did come on. And as we're talking, the big picture exploded and I decided I have to do a Halloween special. Oh, cool. And then it, it grew from her and I doing uh, a two hour interview, which I normally do mm -hmm. to extending it to a three hour interview Wow. And then it grew from there where I, I just wanted to invite all of my former guests to come back on, share their spooky experiences with, with me and the audience. And then I got in, in contact with a couple of other people who have written uh, scary ghost stories, like true accounts of ghost stories within the Las Vegas area. Uh-huh. So I've, I've now got it up to about, I think it's 11 guests. Wow. Um, and each, each of those guests has shared about an hour of their story with me. So that's kind of the story of the, uh, the Dead Hand Radio Halloween special. And because you're one of my previous guests, also a SIP Network brother. Brother. Or can we can we call it a member of the SIP Network Brotherhood? Yeah, it would be good too. I don't know if it's a brotherhood anymore though, because uh, isn't Dave's girl part of the group now? Well, we're not a He-Man Woman Haters Club, so oh, for sure, you know, <laughs> not at all. We could call it a personhood. Yes, maybe. there you go. Oh, and uh, and I also also um, believe that Ben's wife is oh yeah I married a Bigfoot or something like that yeah yeah right, she's podcasting now too so there's two women that I know of that are um part of this part of the network yeah we got to start calling it something else I guess who it's came up with that the slightly irregular podcast network I think somebody came up with the irregular or irregular regulars or something like that and then somebody said yeah, what about slightly irregular? Okay. And yeah, yeah. So I, I, I know there was a big um, big push at the beginning where we were all on kind of going back and forth for stuff, and it was just kind of organic and and came out. But uh, I love it. It's a great name. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool name. It's a great group of people. Um, every one of them is passionate about podcasting and supporting the other members. I'm just 
very grateful to be included in that group. We're, we're all uh, honored. You know, it's, it's, it's such a positive group and I just, I, I just keep going back to it over and over again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's, I think that's a, a pretty good, um, that's enough banter. We'll, we'll get into the meat of this uh, because the Halloween special is supposed to be a little bit spooky. You got your great lighting on. If this was, <laughs> yeah, if this was going to go on YouTube, man, you got the perfect backdrop. You got I, the, the perfect got my, lighting for it. My Tom Savini signed uh, yeah. Dawn of the Dead poster. My George Romero signed uh, Day of the, Dawn of the Dead poster. Fantastic, um, man. So, Jamie, for your, um, when I talked to you, when I approached you about doing an episode for the Dead Hand Radio Halloween special. Um, you suggested doing a reading of an Edgar Allan Poe poem. Right. And this actually prose. No, prose? It's actually okay. one of his prose. Okay. Yeah. So one of his prose. Now, uh, what's the title of that? So it's called The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. And, um, it's it, it's a you know a, a short story I, I guess you would call it um, that was originally written by Poe back in 1845. It came out in December of 1845 from the American Review and Broadway Journal, and it is um, well I did a, a fave I did a fave five uh, early on in the in the series where I had a uh, very well versed English teacher who loved Poe come in and the two of us did uh, our fave five lists of his literary works. And this one came up uh, as the number four for me on my list. Um, I, I chose it because I felt um, my reading of it would probably work out best because it's a, it's a very spooky and creepy feel to it. Um, it's just, it's just, really a couple of people who actually even even speak um, and it has a lot of great atmosphere and I've actually never done anything like this so uh, after I recorded it I went back and uh, edited it down to where I wanted to and then I, I had a lot of fun with it I started playing with it um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed the way that it came out I, I hate my voice sometimes like we I think we all we all do uh, but I was able to, to lay some stuff down uh, behind it and play with the voices. Um, and it's, it's a very cool story. And I, I didn't realize um, how much I liked this story because I could remember as a kid watching Night Gallery. And one of the very earliest episodes tells the story about uh, a, a doctor who practices hypnotism and he's called into a dying man's house and he puts him basically uh, under hypnotism and then the guy dies and then it goes on from there and you're like well how's it going from there well it, it does and i loved that episode it always stuck in my mind and it wasn't until i researched for uh, my faith five show that i always thought it was based off of m valdemar but i found out later it was based off of another story that came out in the 50s but it's got to be, a, you know, a retelling of this story. And um, so anyway, that's that's why I chose it. Um, uh, I love it. It's got a, a pretty high creep factor. So I hope your listeners enjoy it. Right now, we're going to listen to Jamie Ray retell the story by Edgar Allan Poe. 
The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar by Edgar Allan Poe Published 1845 Read to you by Jamie Ray Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter of wonder that the extraordinary case of M. Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desires of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations and very naturally of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts as far as I comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. My attention for the last three years has been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago, it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there has been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen first whether, in such condition, there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether, if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity. The last in a special, from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to the think of my old friend, M. Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of Bibliothèque Forensica and the author, under the nom de plat of Iskar Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallerstein and Gargantua. M. Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person, his lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous, and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiments. On two or three occasions, I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his particular constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance, I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to which becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in coroned thesis. It was his custom indeed to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution as a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was of course very natural that I should think of M. Valdemar 
I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would likely interfere. I spoke to him frankly about the subject, and to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination and death. And it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about 24 hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from M. Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P, you may as well know now, D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow night, midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in 15 more minutes I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for 10 days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, the eyes were utterly lustreless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expiration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in the bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and attained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-oseous or cartilaginous state and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The night in its upper portion was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of permanent tubercles running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and at one point, permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity, no sign of it had discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the thesis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta, but on this point, the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that M. Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, Drs. D and F had bidden him a final farewell. 
It had not been their intent to return, but at my request, they agreed to look in upon the patient at 10 the next night. When he was gone, I spoke freely with M. Valdemar on the subject of his approaching disillusion, as well as most particularly of the experiment proposed. He still confessed himself quite willingly and even anxious to have made it and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case of a sudden accident, might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from farther embarrassment. It had been my design originally to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed first by the urgent entries of M. Valdemar, and secondly by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L. was so kind as to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I now have to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state as distinctly as he could to Mr. L. whether he, M. Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, but quite audibly, Yes, I wish to be mesmerized. Adding additionally afterwards, I feel you have deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passage which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He had evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all my powers, no farther perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after 10 o'clock when doctors D and F called, according to the appointment. I explained to them, in a few words, what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time, his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertuous, and at intervals of half a minute. His condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural though a very deep sigh escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertuous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertuousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before 11, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eyes was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver as in incipient sleep and with a few more I closed them all together. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously and with the fullest extent of the will until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, 
The arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loins. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine M. Valdemar's condition. With a few experiments, they admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D. resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F. took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. and the nurses remained. We left M. Valdemar entirely undisturbed until 3 o'clock in the morning when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F. went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible. His breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached M. Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But... To my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. M. Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor upon the lips and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight quivering, a shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of a ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. Do you feel pain in the breast, M. Valdemar? The answer now was immediate, but even less audible than before. No. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise and expressed unabound amazement at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again. I did so, saying, M. Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval, the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very saintly, almost inaudibly, It 
was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that M. Valdemar shall be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene, and this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change upon the countenance of the sleep-waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots which, heretofore, had been strongly defined in the centers of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of breath. The upper lip at the same time writhed slightly away from the teeth, which it had previously completely covered, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of M. Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in M. Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observed in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epitaphs which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable for the simple reason that no similar sound has ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as the characteristics of the intonation, as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or for some deep cavern within the earth. In the second, it impressed me, I fear indeed, that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended. A gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully thrilling distinct, simplification. M. Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he had slept. He now said,
No person present even affected to deny or attempted to repress the unutterable, shuddering horror which these words, thus uttered, were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L., the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour we busied ourselves, silently, without the utterance of a word, in endeavors to revive Mr. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to the investigation of M. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects, as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention that, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed M. Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in a mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related to all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleep-waker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon, we called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the proprietary and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by so doing. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken M. Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, disillusion. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at M. Valdemar's house, accompanied, now and then, by medical or other friends. All this time the sleep-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening or attempting to awaken him, and it is the, perhaps, unfortunate result of the later experiment which has now given rise to much discussion in private circles, to so much for what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving M. Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was awarded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. It was now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. 
then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as follows. M. Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles of the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth. Although the jaws and lip remained rigid as before, and at length the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's was thoroughly unnerved and in an instant remained undecidable at what to do. At first I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but failing in that thorough abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be most successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible for any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes amid ejaculations of absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once within the space of a single minute or even less shrunk crumbled absolutely rotted away beneath my hands upon the bed before that whole company there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome of detestable putridity thank you for joining me and happy Halloween. The story was creepy. It was chilling. One thing I have to say, dude. Uh-huh. You have such a friendly voice. But there, there's a creep factor in it that you don't expect. And right. it's when the ghost starts to speak. Yeah. <laughs> or is it a ghost or the dead body? It's, it, it's it, the dead. It's, it's, it's M. Valdemar. Um, and he, basically it's his consciousness that is so greatly hypnotized that he is not allowed to, to leave his body. His spirit is not allowed. Um, and I've, I've read a, a bunch of different takes on this. And one of the things that most people will come back and mention is the fact that when his speech starts to come back, and especially the when it comes from beyond, um, the tongue is what actually moves. And, and so the voice doesn't even come like from the vocal cords. It comes from a, a, a deeper place. And uh, they've had this story done um, on, I think it's called Cat's Eyes, which was a Dario Argento uh, small featurette that starred um, maybe Harvey Keitel where he played um, the hypnotist. 
And it's a little different because in that story, he can't wake Valdemar up. So they do a little twist on it. And then now the dead have a conduit to come from the from there into our world. And it, it's a really, it, it, he took a great idea and, and cranked it up to 11 on the spooky. Um, but, but thank you. I, I tried to, to do a little something that maybe wasn't an expe- wasn't expected. Yeah, it was, it was good. And, uh, you know, it, it really makes you think is, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, he's such an imaginative dude, mm-hmm. but is he, is he telling a true story in this, <laughs> in this, uh, you know, is it possible yeah you know he's such a fascinating person Um, yeah and i've read not tons of stuff but i've read a lot on him and i want to say if he was if he was alive today he would probably be diagnosed with some different clinical especially depression and and you know maybe you know a, a few other things but this story it just comes from somewhere that you can't even you know, fathom. I mean, he is delving into what is death and what is the soul and what keeps the soul in the body. And, you know, it, it just, every time I read it, it gives me just another level, you know, this time when I, when I went through it, it was the fact that uh, I've forgotten that the original nurses, when the first time they put him under and, and he was, they were like, oh, hell no, I, I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> and he had to get more nurses to come in and stay with him, you know? Uh, and it, it, it's, it's amazing to think that that, that story was, was written over 150 years ago, you know? To think that someone could be that imaginative. Uh, plus, you look at all the other stories. I almost read a story called Hop Frog. Uh, and it was a true horror story, but there were a whole bunch of different people in it. And I didn't think I could pull it off. Um, you mentioned that there are some resources available for, for people that are interested in learning more about Poe or following along with some of his readings. And there's a community out there of people. Yes, um, there are, you know, because Poe's works are out in the public domain, there are a whole group of just Poe fans who have created their own audio versions of the stories. Uh, And if you go to YouTube, uh, there are also a ton of well-known actors like Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, uh, James Mason, that have all read stories over the years and people have recorded those and posted them as well. And so if you want to find the actual original stories as they were told, if you'll go to YouTube and just search for any of the stories, uh, they'll come up. And I've got to say, especially the the Vincent Prices have always been some of my favorites. Yeah. Vincent, Uh, Vincent Price has that voice, man. Oh, he does. And, and, there's several i mean it's probably one of the most well uh well done is uh edgar Allan poe's the raven which people are most familiar with there are so many people who have recorded it that you can find on on youtube and it's amazing just to listen to this to so many different people read the same words 
I am all about the horror films. I'm all about Halloween. Um, Since I was very young, I had, you know, there was a bunch of small books by a guy named Daniel Cohen. And you, of course, you know, you know, we're, we're around the same age. You couldn't go on the internet. The internet wasn't even available to, to normal people. Uh, So if you didn't see a movie when it was on TV or you caught it when it was, you know, like you could get it on a VCR tape, you couldn't see it. Yes. So for me growing up, it was, it was the famous monsters of movie land and it was books like that. And then going to the library and over and over again. And I just voraciously took in every horror and, and and sci-fi that I could. Uh, And, you know, Vincent Price, like I said earlier, is, is one of my favorites of all time. You know, there was also in the, uh, 80s. I'm not sure if it was around. Actually, I don't think it was around in the 70s, but in the 80s when cassettes came out, because mm-hmm. uh, prior to that, you know, it was eight tracks and those right. were, that you didn't have the Walkman uh, available for those uh, eight tracks. You had them when the cassette players came out, mm-hmm. but they started to put audiobooks on cassettes back in the 80s. Right. And yeah, I would I would listen to those um, all the time. Do you remember some of the first audiobooks were were stereo, but they were dual audio. So you would put a tape in and you'd shift the stereo all the way over to the left and you'd hear 45 minutes of the story. And then you'd flip it over and listen to the other side and listen for 45 minutes. Hmm. Uh, no, I don't remember would, that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, but, but wait, then you would flip it back over switch to the right hand speaker and it was continuation of the story hmm. so you would be like having two tapes all on one uh I, I i remember having a um alfred hitchcock telling stories uh cassette like that right now i i actually have a entire collection of uh old time radio programs remember they used to do mm-hmm. the um what audio dramas on yes, the radio suspense and x minus one right oh, yeah. i love those i have a whole collection of those on cassette and i still have a walkman believe it or oh. not <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I have, I have old tech that you know old analog tech that people probably have never even heard of yeah i've got um I don't have a CED player, but I've got CED discs. And then I've got three laser disc players, uh, Betamax. Oh, for VHS, the video. Uh-huh. Yeah, for the video. Wow. And then I have an HD player and, of course, Blu-ray players. And I've got media and all all different. I love, you know, I, I, I guess you have to call it retro now, but I love yeah. all that, the older stuff, especially those CEDs. I've been looking for a player for a long time. Don't know where you can find. I mean, eBay maybe, but yeah, they're probably so, gonna have to pay. Yeah, they're so heavy. That. Yeah, um, that I'd just be worried about it getting damaged in shipment. Yeah, so, I'll find one one day. They're out there. Well, if it's important to you, and if it's you know, all the movies almost now are digitized, so you can get them on whatever streaming uh, video library you've got, Vudu, 
uh, Amazon Prime has video storage, Microsoft as, movies. As Dave would say, Tubi TV. Tubi, oh, yeah. Tubi. Tubi. There's a lot of There's stuff a bunch there. of movies on Tubi now. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tubi has commercials, don't they? Yeah. Don't you have to watch the commercials too? Yeah, and IMDb, same thing. But I guess, like you said, if you can't find it anywhere else, yeah, it's a good place to find it. Yeah. Now with Tubi, there is a trick you can get around the commercials. Oh. And and it's the same. It's true with YouTube also. If you mm-hmm. if you don't like watching commercials on YouTube, download the Brave browser. Okay. And you can watch your YouTube and your Tubi movies. Commercial. Never free. heard of it. Yeah. Wow, the Brave. I'll have to look up that because I, I do watch. It's it's funny, the stuff that I watch versus the stuff that I want to watch, because there's like a lot of new horror films that I haven't seen yet, simply because when I watch a new movie like that, I sit down and I'm I'm focused on it, where otherwise I could just sit here and watch, you know, the Abominable Doctor Fibes for the fortieth time and you know, instantly know exactly where it is at any time. Uh, and I noticed earlier today that Amazon Prime has a ton of classic horror films um, available for free on yeah. their on their Prime Video library. They do. They do. And of course, the, the actual library is also a wonderful resource for finding older films. True. Um, yes, I, I agree. And, and a lot of times, you, there's, it's especially, you know, during COVID, it's a contactless pickup. You can go online. You can find the movies. Uh, you know, Lafayette has about seven or eight different um, libraries in our parish area, and they'll pull it from other places and have it waiting at the place closest to you. So I, I got to say, if there's something out there that you you haven't found and it's on disc, if your library doesn't have it, chances are they can get it for you. And you're Louisiana, right? Do you? Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, do you live down near New Orleans? I live uh, about two hours from New Orleans. Uh-huh. So New Orleans is at the tip. You come about an hour and then there's Baton Rouge. And this is traveling along I-10. And then you come another hour and it's Lafayette. And then you go about another hour and it's Lake Charles. So all of these towns are, are on I-10. Lake Charles has been in the, the, the uh, national news because within six weeks... It's actually Cameron, but the whole parish. But within six weeks, we had two hurricanes literally cross within 15 miles of each other. And I had friends, um, Patrick, who's been on my show a couple of times and who co-hosts the Pop Ninja podcast. Uh, He got power back, I think, on a Tuesday. And then the next hurricane hit on Friday. And he was out of power for four and a half weeks, I think. So, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, but you know, we don't have mudslides or earthquakes or, you know, anything like that, but everybody's got their thing, but it's a wonderful place to live. I'm, I'm a, I'm a redneck because I'm from about, uh, 70 miles up, but as soon as you cross I-10, it's a whole nother world down here. It's an interesting place. Uh, when I moved here, I was probably about a 140 pounds and there's just so much good food there's always something to do down here good family oriented place yeah uh is it cajun cooking or Mm -hmm. is it just uh just outright barbecue oh no uh it's it's cajun and you know a lot of people it's difficult to make the distinction um new orleans style food is actually called creole and 
we're more Cajun. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that, that um, this area was originally settled by Christians who were kind of pushed out of the Nova Scotia Canadian area, and they came down and they settled down here. Uh, and then spreading out, of course, New Orleans was, hmm, I think, the third biggest uh, water port in the country. And it's, it's always been, you know, so, th so they've got that area down there, but it's, that's what everybody thinks of when they see, you know, on TV, it's always in New Orleans. Uh, and we have different, different versions of things. Like we have our, our different Mardi Gras, uh, where in New Orleans, um, you know, you'll see a lot of naked ladies pulling their shirts up and a lot of drunken debauchery, which is fine for adults that want to do that. It's all great. But like here in Lafayette, uh, it's more of a family-oriented, uh, where you, know, you don't have to, to to get exposed so much to that. Literally exposed. Uh, but, uh, it's just a wonderful, great place to live. Uh, I would, I never want to leave this area. I tell people I didn't, I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. Now, New New Orleans is also well famous for Mardi Gras, mm -hmm. um, and if anybody had not heard of that. Uh, Katrina, the, the hurricane that went through there and wiped out the, the city, um, made it internationally, I don't know if it's infamous or renowned, but, um, you know, everybody, I think, in the world knows New Orleans mm -hmm. for, for that. But it's also known, and I, I don't know how well known it is for this, but it's, uh, it's known for quite a few hot spots in the paranormal yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 what we call the, the Grigri, uh, or the voodoo, uh, has a lot of presence down in new Orleans. There's, there's several places right off of, uh, the, the main strip where, uh, Jackson square is a few blocks off of, um, bourbon street. And, and there are places in there that have practicing witches that you can go into, there are some haunted haunted tours that you can take, uh, drawn by carriage or walking tours. Um, there's a place there, and I think Brad Pitt owned it for a while, either Brad Pitt or Nicolas Cage. And supposedly the spirits of um, like house servants that died can be heard in the third uh, on the third floor. You can hear them walking around and, and wailing and stuff. But New Orleans is a rich, rich environment uh, for the paranormal. Oh, they also have incredible musicians that have come out of there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some some fantastic, like you said, already food. Now, what? so and in Lafayette, do you, is there any type of uh, that paranormal uh, influence that uh, we're familiar with in in the uh, New Orleans area? Um, I don't believe uh, the paranormal as much as uh, spooky stuff, but there is, that, that I know of right offhand, there is, um, I think her name is Charlene, but there was a woman who uh, was murdered, um, I guess put to death, whatever, uh, chained to a tree and supposedly if you go there at certain times you can still hear her and um 
that's that's one place that I that I'm familiar with. I'm actually originally from a town called Ball, which is up further uh, on 165, uh, about about right in the middle of uh, of Louisiana, and we have an abandoned Air Force, I mean, a Army base there that was called um, Camp Livingston, and as a kid, we would go out there and spend the night, you know, in a can't in a tent or whatnot. And there were a couple of places that were pretty damn spooky. Um, supposedly there had been, and you would see the, the satanic, you know, stuff written on the walls and things that weren't paint uh, on the floors and some of the abandoned bunkers and parents just did not want us going out there, but, you know, you're 12, 13, 14 years old. You're like, oh man, what's all this? Let's go out and get the get the poop scared out of us, you know? <laughs> For some reason, the uh, you know it the the movie Stand by Me by Stephen King, or the the book Stand by Me, which I think the book had a different name to it, but it was made into a movie. Um, no, I think it was actually called the same thing. Was it? I think you're okay. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, great one of the greatest coming of age movies of all time. And it wasn't even that scary. So when I found out Stephen King wrote it, I, it, you know, it didn't really compute to me because he's the <laughs> king of horror. Right? right. But uh, this, when you were telling me about you and your friends going and having camp, camp outs and getting the crap scared out of you over <laughs> in those places, it kind of reminded me of that, you know, that type of a story. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's it. We'd ride our bikes out there. Um, we all, you know, had our own little individual because we were all Boy Scouts. And so we all had our little, own little individual tent. And it's always so hot in Louisiana. You didn't have to carry a sleeping bag or anything else with you. And we'd ride out there and we'd find one of the bunkers and uh, we'd make camp and we'd cook, you know, whatever hot dogs or what. And then, man, when it got dark out there, it got dark because there's no power or anything. And we would ride mile and a half or so into it so it was it was it could be really spooky out there yeah like, but it sounds like a blast too it was man. it was watching blair witch made me think of those days <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's sure, what it felt like sure. you know so did you have any like creepy uh unexplainable occurrences happen while you were doing that um no but I was, uh, I'm, I'm ready for you because I knew you were going to ask me this story. So <laughs> as when we were a Boy Scout, okay, and so this was probably, was probably 13, maybe, but it was before I was in high school. There was a, a, a small plane that had gone off course and crashed up in the next parish up above us and because of some failure they didn't know exactly where it went down and they got a whole bunch of volunteers to go out and do you know grid searches and we would get you could see you could pretty much see each other because you wouldn't get too far apart maybe 30 40 feet and as we're walking out through the woods you know you're looking for any type of anything on the ground that may tell you the plane had come this way I uh, I remember looking over one time and Francis was supposed to be on the right-hand side of me. And there was, a, there was somebody walking who had a leather jacket on 
and he had glasses. And I remember looking at him just thinking, oh, that's, who is that, you know? And then just kept going. You never gave it a, a second thought. And then I looked up again later and he was gone. And I was like, oh, well, maybe he was just, just checking with somebody. And anyway, long story shortened. Um, <laughs> they, we never found the guy. We never found the plane, but he was found uh, in another area. And when they showed us his picture, I swear it was the guy. Wow. That's a creepy story, dude. It was, it, it, it was, it was not dark, but it was, it was waning in the twilight, you know, before it got dark. And when they, when they showed us that, those pictures afterwards, and you could see the, the plane and, and it was just, you know, and then, okay. And, and, you know, I can't even remember this guy's name and here, you know, here was the pilot. I looked at him and I just goosebumps, you know, the hair just stood up and I was like, Oh my God. And I went and asked the guy, did you see that guy? And he was like, no, what guy? There was no guy. I said, he was between us. No, man. I never saw him. I was like, Oh hell no. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's about the spookiest thing I've ever had happen to me. Okay. You saw a ghost in, <laughs> in real life with your eyes, man. Yeah. It wasn't imaginary. It wasn't a hallucination. That's scary, dude. Yeah. I, you know, Pat's going to, I never told Pat that story. I, I should, uh, I should let him know too. Cause I know he would, he would like that. Awesome, dude. So you, yeah. you, you broke that story here on Deadhead Radio, <laughs> the <laughs> Halloween <laughs> special <laughs> first. <laughs> I'm so honored, man. Yeah, Thank you, wow. Thank you oh, for sharing that. Uh, now, I do know uh, one creepy story. Was that it? Did you have any yeah, other? No, that's really the. the okay. I've had weird things happen to me all my life, but that was the only unexplainable thing that's that's ever happened. That and um, what what could have been um, a flying saucer, but I. I I was when I was young, but my grandmother on my, my mom's side, um, she, she saw it too. Now she actually saw flying saucers a few times, wow. but we were in her van that night and I saw it out the back window and I was like, granny, did you see that? She was like, yep, that's none of the one of them UFOs. Just, it just kept driving. I mean, didn't bother her didn't at all. Think twice yeah. about it. Huh? No, no, but it was the, it was the, the perfect triangular shape, three lights with a big light in the middle. It kind of looked like a, like a ball in a, not, not exactly flat, but a, a, a flattened triangle. Uh, and I will, I will never, and because it, it did not move like a plane. It, it went straight and then took off at probably about a 45 degree angle and it was gone and never, not a word. I mean, not a sound, nothing, but that's, yeah that's that's more uh you it doesn't <laughs> no it, it still fits it still fits the theme man because you know we still don't know what ufos are we don't know what ghosts are uh they could be connected in some way um what's funny though is was it your granny did you say yeah. it was your granny yeah what's funny is oh that's another one of those ufos she had seen uh several um three or four of them and and the story goes is that that my her husband my grandfather uh worked building roads with a company called tl james 
and he would be gone for weeks at a time. And they had eight kids and it was tough times. And so they lived in an area called Pollock, uh, which is a little bit north of us. And feeding eight kids takes a lot of money. So she was an avid fisherman and an avid hunter. So it would be nothing for her to, to feed the kids and then go out into the woods to shoot anything from squirrels, you know, to rabbits or deer or something. So she'd be gone sometimes all day and it would be the night before she would get home. And she told us uh, several different times when she was coming home uh, that she had seen them. And she, they, they, the triangular one that I told her about, she said she had seen that one before. She saw another one that must have been hexagonal because it wasn't uh, a square and it was more of them. Uh, and then I, I can't even remember what the other one was, but they were different shapes. But this was just the, the way she was. She, she had seen it and it didn't, you know, it, she, it didn't mess with her. She didn't mess with it. You know, just as long as you didn't try to take the squirrel meat that I'm bringing home to cook, I'm, we're good. You know, yeah, it ain't threatening me. Can't eat it. Ain't going to shoot it. That's it. Yeah, she didn't bat an eye. Yeah, that's funny. That is so funny. Now, uh, so I'm going to I'm going to lead this story off. And if you've heard it, feel free yeah. to jump in, mm -hmm. because uh, when we're talking about Louisiana, and especially New Orleans, you cannot not especially on a halloween special cannot not talk about the new orleans axe man yes you know that story oh yeah that's lily's one of lily's favorite stories she's she's 12 and uh she loves that story oh is that your daughter that's my, my youngest daughter yes okay okay yeah, lily died um no but that's ooh. Yeah, that, please that's go ahead. Story. Though that's a great story. Uh, okay, so was it the uh, uh, like early 1900s, late 1800s, yeah. somewhere? Yeah, in I think that? It, I think you're right. I think it's like you know 1910, 1920 okay. that that time period. Yeah, and there was a rash of murders that were taking place, and the, it it uh, now. My, I didn't research this. I'm going off of complete memory from mm -hmm. my knowledge of this, but uh, I believe that there were clues linking the murders back to the same murderer, but the police did not want to make it a big deal. They didn't want to let people know there was a serial killer because they didn't want to panic. Mm -hmm. uh, that hurts tourism. Uh, it freaks people out. They don't want to get out late at night. So they just kept that under wraps. And the Axemen started sending letters to the police right. that said, this is, I am the Axeman. These are my kills and I'm taking responsibility for them. Right. And he, he also sent it to the, to the newspapers. That's, and that's right. That's, what that's it when, it, when it hit. And of course he was called the Axeman because everywhere that he killed someone, like the first couple of times he used an ax from their house. Oh, because that's a lot right. of people used, you know, it was all wood stoves and, you know, again, it doesn't get that cold down here, but you know, so that everybody had a little woodshed where you'd go out and, and, you know, you'd have your tools. And so 
that's why he was called the axe man is because he would use it and leave it there for the police um so the story goes on and uh you know he they they cannot catch him and he's just continuously sending letters and taunting them and you know and then he starts to talk about how he is not even human right he's a demon or something like exactly. that exactly and then he gives them an ultimatum i'm not sure what year this was exactly or how long it had gone on but it had gone on for at least a year mm-hmm. uh and his ultimatum was by midnight of this particular evening was it a halloween i don't think it was a halloween it might have even been a christmas eve it was a it was a special night it was a tuesday night and what he said is that at at, at 12 15 you have to be playing jazz music and like the like the um the the spirit of of you know god who passed over any house that had a, an x with ram's blood if you were playing that music i'll pass by and if you're not then i'm gonna i'm gonna kill you and so everybody was playing it yeah so he had everybody because it went out in the newspaper yeah. so everybody who read the newspaper and i'm sure through the grapevine everybody who had heard the story or the threat the mm-hmm. warning mm-hmm. um that if if you're playing jazz music i'll pass you by and if you're not and and this is the last time i'm you're gonna hear from me i'm not gonna uh kill any more people i'm i'm gonna cease and desist all activity in this area and he did he made he made true to his promise and he never killed again in new orleans did he resurface somewhere else? Okay, so again, this has been a little while since I, I did the story. So one of the things is that one woman survived the attack. And she says that there were two people, not just one. And she described them to the police. And so the police were looking for, I don't know, it was like a beanpole and a, and a stocky guy type deal. And... After the Axeman's jazz request and they stopped, she left and I want to say moved to California. And then the police, when they were doing some stuff, they kind of found out that the guy who was killed was was you know wrapped up maybe like in the mob. Hmm. And they think it might have been a hit. And they started doing some other research and she married another guy and that guy got killed. So then they started to think that she was actually the one involved with the mob. And so one of the guys, somebody that was killed out in California was also killed with an ax, but they could never tie the two of them together except through her. But it was quote unquote coincidence. I think I heard that story or I read that story a few years ago, three or four years ago. I think that's, I might've, I might've listened to a podcast about it. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's it for this episode of Dead Hand Radio. And I really appreciate you coming on and joining me for this Halloween special, Jamie. Look forward to connecting with you again in the future. That sounds great. Thanks for having me, sir. And as I like to say, this is Hulk Boy from Hollywood signing off. All right, my friend. It was great pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks too, sir. Looking forward to uh, hearing them. All right. Have a good one, Jamie. You too now. Bye. Bye.